Welcome to episode number 22 of the Anxiety Free Life podcast. This episode is about a book called The Cinderella Complex by Colette Dowling. And it's a book that parallels with current gender studies and rights dynamics, as well as my own and others' reported experiences with anxiety. And it'll touch on fears, independence, anxiety and entitlement, as well as hardship, hiding and achievement gaps. So let's get started on the book. Sometimes it is easier to meet an external challenge, a crisis or a tragedy, than to rise to the challenge that comes from within. The mandate to take risks, to grow. I had always considered myself a fighter, someone who if called to battle would slog through its muddiest parts undaunted. There had been times that required courage and fortitude and I had risen to them. Soon after my marriage broke up, it became clear that the job of supporting the children would fall to me. My husband became emotionally ill suffering from manic episodes that ended in hospitalization. For nine years until he died of an untreated ulcer, he was hospitalized about once a year. In between these episodes, maintained on lithium, he would remain relatively stable. His illness was so debilitating, however, that although he had a keen intellect, He was unable to manage any but the most untaxing jobs, working as a bartender, a dishwasher, and finally a messenger during the last five years of his life. I made two decisions, the consequences of which were sometimes difficult. I would not abandon him during those times when his illness became severe, and I would not prevent him, and I would not prevent the children from visiting him, except for the times when he was acutely manic and delusional. Manic depressive disease is slippery and elusive. The episodes of mania seem to occur in cycles, but the onset of any given episode is unpredictable. Ed would often come flying into our apartment at the peak of one of his manic episodes convinced he was on the verge of winning some great national election. Then, having had no sleep for weeks, his motor revving beyond all endurance, he would reel out onto the streets, soon to go crashing down with depression and paranoia. I visited him in the wards of hospitals that echoed with loneliness and despair. I learned, if I ever learned anything, that there are things in this world over which we have no control. At the same time, there was a secret, hidden part of me that felt sorry for myself to have gone so quickly in one short year from being a wife, protected and supported, to being a single mother of three, alone and unprotected, and quite unsure of my ability to support us all was utterly terrifying. Writing was my only skill, tenuously arrived at, barely even believed in, in 1971. 
I was challenged at first and fascinated by the reality of having to pay the rent every month. There was tremendous support for what I was doing. Within a year, half of the women I knew best had left their husbands and were going it alone in big, bulky, rent-controlled apartments just like mine, with children just like mine and concerns just like mine. We became very close. We saw each other every day and talked on the phone every night. We were, without doubt, a support network, and God knows how any of us would have managed without it. But we were also hiding. We seemed to be more interested in maintaining our lives, exactly as they had been before the father figures left, than in rising to the challenge of making something new. It's remarkable how long I was able to exist without really deciding anything. I didn't want to be alone, to experience myself as being alone, so I continued to share my responsibilities, as I had always done. None of us really wanted to make decisions on our own. We consulted all the time, particularly on the things having to do with kids. We lent money to one another and met on street corners in the yearly New York mornings. Sometimes we would stand right out on the street and put our heads on one another's, shoulder, on one another's shoulders and cry. We were shameless in the expression of the weakness we felt within, but we also found found our new lives exhilarating. We drank wine late into the night and smoked pot and began dating again like girls. I had no idea what kind of man interested me or was good for me. I met and went out with men like a teenager. This one was funny looking. The next one was overbearing and earnest. The one after that was sexy but too pushy. Going out with men terrified me. I felt like a 14-year-old locked inside the body of a woman of 33. I began setting my hair, tweezing my eyebrows, and worrying about my breath. We were growing up. That was it. Voluptuous, smartest, with a slipped veneer of sophistication that only living in Manhattan can give you. We were really pu pu pubescent girls with spinach cord in our braces. Having no men at home, no husbands, revealed us for what we were. Frightened, insecure, amazingly underdeveloped, both mentally and psychologically. We were glad to be sprung from the cage, but inwardly we shrank back from the new freedom to manage our own lives. Before us lay only dark, uncleared paths leading into the jungle. Symptomatic of my unwillingness to really commit myself to the world of adults was my peculiar attitude towards money. I needed more, but felt helpless to do anything about it. As a writer, I lived from month to month, hoping for some magical break, hoping the brass ring would swing within reach and I would be able to grab it. 
During those first years on my own, I never evaluated the financial realities of my work life. Never considered going back to school. Never developed a plan that might stabilise my situation. I kept my head firmly stuck in the sand, eyes shut tight, hoping that things would work out. Certain stark realities impinged upon me because the monthly bills had to be paid, but I responded to this with a frightened passivity. I was not making gains in the direction of taking charge of my life, I was simply avoiding the gallows. At the same time, I was quite convinced I wasn't interested in marrying again. Married, I hadn't had the strength to fight off those overwhelmingly de overwhelming dependency needs. Alone, I was forced to. In a way, the instinct was correct. Although the underlying dependency was still there, lying dormant between the frantic struggle of my life as a single woman, at least I wasn't acting on it all the time, reinforcing my helplessness with every passing day as I had done when I was a wife. On the other hand, a secret unconscious part of me was waiting to be bailed out again. Like an adolescent, I enjoyed my newfound freedom, but when anything disturbing happened, I longed for the protection of the old days. Inwardly, I had established a moratorium on growth. Out of fear, I lived within certain rigid boundaries that prevented me from learning, from expanding my mind, from finding out what I might actually be capable of doing. Psychologically, things were more complicated than my simply feeling inferior and timid. I wavered between grandiose notions of my ability and the most degrading feelings of incompetence. While I felt this bind viscerally, I couldn't imagine how I might get out of it. Woman is loser, as, Jan as Janis Joplin cried. I became quite fascinated with the view of women as oppressed. Unfortunately, the tender aspects of the feminist movement messed with and reinforced my personal paralysis. I used feminism as a rationalisation for staying right where I was. Instead of concentrating on my own development, I focused on them. They were keeping me down. Women couldn't get it together because women wouldn't, because men wouldn't let them, period. A, a peculiar thing happened. My writing got better and my career began to lift off the ground. This frightened me too and I was unable to get behind myself and push. Instead of feeling good about the writing breakthrough, I began to feel that I was not very smart, only clever and manipulative. I saw myself as getting by as a journalist. A splash here, a splash there, but one day I'd be exposed for the fraud I knew I was. At this point, it should have begun dawning on me that there was something I got out of maintaining so negative a view of myself. I didn't really want to succeed, not all the way, not so the world would know once and for all that I didn't really need anyone to take care of me. I can take care of myself. To utter those words, 
and Minum would be like putting a pox on myself. Gone would be the ace in the hole. I can take care of myself. What monumental hubris. What tempting of the fates and the gods. Once you admit that, you've as much as thrown in the towel, given up all residual claims to helplessness. The game then was I can take care of myself, sort of. Unfortunately though, you can't stay on the fence and progress at the same time. My life became narrower rather than broader. I learned the slickest ways of avoiding. I spent virtually all my spare time with other people, and quite a lot of time that wasn't spare. I told myself I needed this after the long friendless years of my marriage. Probably I did need it, but I was also used to people, but I also used people to avoid developing my own personal consciousness. I became a social butterfly, the queen of West End Avenue. I worked very late at night and slept very late in the morning. Even the writing became kind of a safety valve. With it, I would bore right to the centre of the volcano, release a little steam, then drop off to sleep, ignoring once more the cause of the destructive fire raging within. Women don't know it because just supporting ourselves seems so radical an effort. But hanging in is not, in and of itself, a noble occupation. It is marking time, treading water. Ultimately, hanging in is a retreat from challenge. We need to find out what it is we're afraid of and go beyond. It's very hard for me to do anything alone. I've always felt that my place was behind somebody. I had an older brother who was perfect. In a lot of ways, I was quite content growing up in his shadow. It felt safe there. I often have a sense of illegitimacy because of not being married and not having children, even though I know it's the cool and groovy thing to do, especially here in San Francisco. But it wasn't the way I grew up, and it wasn't what I want to be. I never really felt that I wanted to be independent. Those admissions of dependency were taken from a tape-recorded interview with a successful psychotherapist, a single 32-year-old woman with a doctorate in psychology. She's a feminist with a practice in California, and as her statements show, she's confused about her own role in the world. Her inner need to be safely behind someone, in sharp contradiction to her ambition to succeed, to be out in front, to be on her own. Anytime life gets too hard, the possibility of giving up to be protected by a man is still there for women. It takes the edge off the will to survive independently, writes Judith Coburn in Mademoiselle. The times in my life when I've let the bills piled up, the car fall apart, the logistics of a trip snarl, I'm broadcasting. See, I can't do this myself. I need someone to save me. Another woman 
a talented songwriter who thinks of herself as a militant feminist, is trying to figure out why she can't seem to generate the energy and go out and take on the music industry. Maybe I just want a man to take care of me, she says. Listen to women talk today and you soon discover that a new woman isn't really new at all. She's mutant. She lives in a kind of never-never land, seesawing between two sets of values, the old and the new. Emotionally, she has not made peace with either, nor has she found a way to integrate the two. All doors are open, says Anne Fleming Taylor, writing in Vogue, but the question is deciding which door to enter. If we mother well, can we work? If we work well, can we love? Shall we compete out there or not? Can we stay at home and not feel guilty, useless and strangely hurt? Inwardly confused and anxious, Wynne back off from living full out. At the frontier edges of their capabilities, a travel agent I met last summer said, We're not yet able to stand on our two feet and say, Yes, I can do this. I'm competent. Women are still afraid. Why are women so fearful? The answer to that question lies at the root of the Cinderella complex. Experience has something to do with it. If you don't go out and do, you'll remain forever fearful of the workings of the world. But many women achieve a certain amount of success in their careers and professions and still remain inwardly insecure. In fact, as we shall see in later chapters, it's remarkable how many women these days retain a hidden core of self-doubt while performing on the outside as if they were towers of confidence. Current research in psychology has established that core doubt is characteristic of women today. We found that the qualities of, of passivity, dependence, and most of all, a lack of self-esteem are the variables that repeatedly differentiate women from men, reports psychologist Judith Bardwick of the studies done at the University of Michigan. Few women need studies to convince them. Lack of confidence seems to follow us from childhood. An intensity so palpable, it sometimes feels as if it exists on its own. Miriam Shapiro, a New York painter, says she spent her whole life in, with the feeling that an unprotected child lives inside her. A fragile, Unarmored creature, timid and self-doubting. Only when she paints, she says, is the child within able to grow more assertive, alive and freer in our movements. No matter how fiercely we try to live like adults, flexible, powerful and free, that girl child hangs on, whispering her frightened whisperings in our ear. The effects of such insecurity are widespread and they result in a disturbing social phenomenon. Women in general tend to function well below the level of their natural abilities. Consider, to begin with, the history of our economic progress over the last 20 years. In spite of the consciousness raising of the 60s and 70s, 
Women are worse off today than they were in the days of crinolines and waist cinches. We earn less money compared with men than we did two decades ago. In 1956, the income figure for females consist constituted 63% of the money earned by males. Now we earn less than 60% of what men earn. Women's studies courses and political action notwithstanding, most of us still enter the workforce with low salary jobs and creep upward or sideways like crabs on a string. Two thirds of women who work earn less than $10,000 a year. We barely make enough ever to be able to do much more than pay the babysitter, let alone earn what it would take to make our future secure. We constitute, apparently willingly, an army of underpaid drones, so massive and so fixed in character that social scientists have seized upon a new name for us, the 80%. 80 refers to the percentage of women workers who occupy menial or semi-skilled jobs paying rotten salaries. Women who, economically at least, are scrambling around at the bottom of the basket of crabs. Until recently, people who work with statistics banded the expression women in the labour force as if we were an army of Amazons about to take over the land. The notion of women's burgeoning strength and mobility has been in the air for at least a quarter of a century. But as sociologists are finally beginning to recognise, for every successful women professional, there's another woman whose labour force participation consists of running a punch press eight hours of every working day, and another whose work amounts to making beds and cleaning rooms, and another who spends her day typing letters and filing correspondence in the large impersonal offices of America's bureaucracies. That statement was made by James Wright of the University of Massachusetts who concluded from, from information provided by six large national surveys that the level of satisfaction of women who work outside the home is no greater than that of women who work inside the home. It's easy to see how working women might show up statistically as being less than thrilled with their jobs when 80% of them are leaving the comforts of home to take work cleaning out offices and or file systems for low pay and no pension. On the surface, it may appear as if the problem is no different for women than it is for men. Precious few people of either gender will ever rise to the top of the economy. But the story for women is different. Studies have shown consistently that while IQ bears a fairly close relationship to accomplishment among men, it bears essentially no relationship at all to accomplishment among women. This shocking discrepancy was first brought to light by the Stanford Gifted Child Study. More than 600 children with IQs above 135, this representing the upper 1% of the population, were identified in the California schools. Their progress was shown into adult, was followed into adulthood. The adult occupations of the women, whose childhood IQs were in the same range as the men's, were the 
were, for the most part, undistinguished. In fact, two-thirds of the women with genius-level IQs of 170 or above were occupied as housewives or office workers. The waste of women's talent is a brain drain that affects the entire country. Psychiatrists have begun to look closely at the problem. Struck by the number of achievement-conflicted women who've come out to who've come to her for help in recent years. Dr. Alexandra Simons noted that talented women are often loath to move ahead to positions of real self-sufficiency. They balk at or become unduly anxious about promotions. Many gravitate towards mentors, preferring to work as a brilliant but unrecognized backup for men in power, refusing both the credit and the responsibility for for their own contributions. In therapy, they cling to their backwardness. Each step towards healthy self-assertion is consciously or unconsciously resisted, says Simons. Some women clearly state that they like being taken care of and have no wish to change this position. Others come with the apparent intent of developing further, but when confronted at the crossroads of actual change, with the inevitable choices towards separation and self-emergence, panic. In her Manhattan practice, Dr. Simons treats many successful, upwardly reaching women. Among them, she has found the problem of self-constraint to be widespread. In relation to their innate abilities, too many women seem incapacitated, unable to realise their full potential. Why? What is it that holds these women back? Fear, says Dr. Simons. Women do not want to experience the anxiety that's intrinsic to the growth process. It has to do with the way they've been reared. As children, females are not taught to be assertive and independent. Indeed, they are taught to be non-assertive and dependent. The fact that the signals have been switched and women are now allowed to be independent has thrown them into inner turmoil. Around this core of dependency that was bred into women as children, they developed. There develops, says Simons, a whole const- constellation of character traits which are interrelated and which reinforce each other. These traits take years to develop. As with any established character pattern, They cannot be given up without anxiety. So it is the giving up of an entire character pattern or the prospect of having to do so that makes women today feel so torn. The dependent pattern has been touted as appropriately feminine by the most influential of psychoanalysts. The following passage from Helene Deutsch's classic text, The Psychology of Women, may have a dated quality as it was published in 1944, but make no mistake, it reflects the same ideas our mothers and fathers had as their daughters were growing up. Consequently, Deutsch's notion of women as the ideal life companion belongs to the very fibre of her being. 
Deutsch assured the world that women are likely to be happiest when they are supporting themselves to their men. They seem to be easily influenceable and adapt themselves to their companions and understand them. They are the loveliest and most unaggressive of helpmates, of helpmates, and they want to remain in that role. They do not insist on their own rights, quite to the contrary. On the subject of women's capacity for being original and productive, George sounded like a mistress of novices in a convent. They are always willing to renounce their own achievements without feeling that they are sacrificing anything and they rejoice in the achievement of their companions. They have an extraordinary need of support when engaged in any activity directed outward. Enlightened psychiatrists these days recognise the contortionist act that was required of women in an age when they were expected to stifle their own healthiest impulses. As Simons observes, women weren't born ideal. They had to work at it. To be able to renounce your own achievements without feeling that you were sacrificing requires constant effort. To be lovely and unaggressive, a woman spends a lifetime keeping hostile or resentful impulses down. Even healthy self-assertion is often sacrificed since it may be mistaken for hostility. Therefore, they often repress their initiative give up their aspirations and unfortunately end up excessively dependent with a deep sense of insecurity and uncertainty about their abilities and their worth. Bearing in mind the enormous change that's taken place in what society considers to be appropriate female behaviour, let's return to the subject of women's current attitudes towards work and money. Certain newly emergent trends begin to make clear that women have not simply been kept economically dependent. They themselves do a good deal to contribute to the situation. Between 1960 and 1976, for example, the number of women who graduated from college increased by almost 400%. And yet over half the 11th grade girls in the country are still cautiously saying they want jobs from among the only three categories. Clerical and secretarial, educational and social services, and nursing. If you want to turn your anxiety around to change your life, then there are three ways you can do it. Mentally, emotionally, and physically. Typically these are separated. Yet we often fail to see the connection when things that happen in one area affect the other two. But now we've built a truly balanced approach that has bound and woven these three things together. So now, mind, body and emotions, the physical, mental and emotional aspects are all bound into one approach. And this powerful approach gets you a crystal clear vision for the kind of life you'd like to live without anxiety holding you back and uncovers hidden challenges that may be sabotaging your ability and holding you back from getting the change you deserve. So you'll be renewed, re-energized and inspired to break the shackles of anxiety, transform your life 
and get all the happiness, health, success and fun you've always wanted to experience. Now you can unlock hidden power in your mind, body and emotions to overcome anxiety, stresses and overwhelm across all the key areas of your life. Get your anxiety free life book today to put it to the test and prove it to yourself and after you do you discover a few things. First, this is the best approach you've ever tried and second, your mind, body and emotions will be way more balanced and you'll get all the benefits that come with that. Increased confidence, more mental clarity and focus and tons less anxiety are yours for the taking. So, do you want to experience what it feels like to be truly balanced? If so, get your anxiety free life book today and find out what it feels like to break the shackles of anxiety, transform your life and be inspired and re-energized. Now get all the happiness, health, success and fun you've always wanted to have. Get your copy to unlock your energy, clarity and confidence today. Go to www.indiegogo.com slash projects slash the anxiety free life book to get your copy today.